Well, we are well into our uh, Rise Psalms of Ascent series. We're on the fourth Psalm, Psalm 120, 121, 122. We're in Psalm 123 today. What I love about these Psalms, and if you're not familiar with it or if you're here for the first time, uh, it's a mini song book in the middle of the book of Psalms, meant for the pilgrims to Jerusalem for feasts and festivals. They would go at least once a year, sometimes multiple times. And these Psalms, these songs were meant to be sung as they traveled together so that they would have these themes on their hearts as they went to meet together and meet with God. So it's kind of a cool thing. And what I love about um, these Psalms and the reason we're doing it during the summer with uh, more of our kids in service is because it's applicable to all ages, every one of our ages. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever been frustrated with a classmate, someone at school? You ever been frustrated with a sibling? You ever been frustrated with a coworker? You ever been frustrated with someone like you're around a lot of time? I think all of us have been frustrated with someone around us. Now, sometimes that's just because we, you know, like our personalities clash. Um, we don't get along with everyone, right? We're not all the same. Sometimes, however... We don't get along because we're treated poorly. Someone around us uh, picks on us, treats us bad, looks down on us. Sometimes that's just because they're mean. <laughs> Sometimes it's because we follow Jesus. But regardless of why we get frustrated with people we don't get along with who are mistreating us, it still sits there. So the question is this, so what do you do? So what do you do? What do you do when we have these people who are mistreating us and we feel frustrated? And what I love about this psalm is that we find themes from Psalm 120, which we sang today. I lift my eyes up to the hills or the mountains. We have that theme uh, in Psalm 121, sorry. And Psalm 120 was all about trouble. And in Psalm 123, we find them coming together, this idea of having trouble and lifting our eyes up to God instead of the mountains or other gods for help. And it's about a specific thing. It's about times when we're frustrated with others when we're being mistreated. And I think the context of this, the reason they're singing this, is because the people traveling to Jerusalem would have been persecuted because they follow God. And so some of the Israelites would have lived outside the borders of Israel and definitely in other cultures would have had that as a daily occurrence. But some lived, or most lived, within the walls of uh, Israel, or within the borders of Israel, and had other Jews who weren't devout. I mean, the story of Israel is people going back and forth, drawing close to God and wandering and drawing close. And, and so there were people who would have mocked the devout. And this is a psalm from someone who is clearly frustrated with the way they're being treated. And they're looking for guidance, and they're looking for something to happen. And the way it, it, it plays out, it's only four verses. It's really great. It's only four verses. And so my hope is that today, that as we read these four verses, they would resonate with you. The same way just a few lines of a song kind of resonate with you. So maybe right now you've got that, you know, if we're going to fight, we fight like eagles, arms. Maybe you've got something like that this week. Uh, Stephanie, my wife, had something like that. And so on Monday, we spent the day together, and she kept singing these lines over and over again from um, Cornerstone by Toby Mac. If you don't know the song, it's a great song. And she turned to me and she said, don't you just love that I don't know the rest of the song? I know these like three lines, I keep singing them over and over. 
And I thought it was cute and funny, and yes, I did, and yes, I asked her if I could share that before I shared it. But we get these things stuck in our heads because they're memorable or they mean something to us. And so my hope today is as we read and interact with Psalm 123, that all these themes from the previous ones that come together here would get stuck in your heart and your life in a way that you can apply. And I think most of us can probably think already of a situation we've been in maybe this school year, at work, uh, in your neighborhood, maybe at home, where you're frustrated with someone who doesn't treat you so great and you're not really sure what to do. Now, before we jump into this, there is a stumbling block and a roadblock for our modern understanding of this psalm. Because the illustration that the uh, author uses, the metaphor the author uses, is that of servants and slaves and masters, head of the household, the mistress of the household. He uses these as a metaphor. Something common in that day, the first readers, the first singers would have understood completely what he meant. But we tend to read back into history and read our understanding of words, concepts, and themes in our culture and what we understand from our period of history backwards. And so we need to address this right away. He talks about servants and slaves. He talks about masters, heads of home, maidservants. But he doesn't talk about them in the way we think about them. In that culture, there was definitely, outside the borders of Israel, human trafficking, mistreatment of humanity, capturing, selling, trading human life, and forcing people to work for you. Outside the borders of Israel, that definitely took place. Inside, it wasn't supposed to. It probably did as well. But when you look at the biblical account, and we look back, there's something different. And there's a term that we use in our modern culture that can help you understand what this author was actually talking about so we don't get stuck on this illustration and miss the point. The term is indentured servitude. So you see that on the screen, indentured servitude. Um, this kind of servanthood or this kind of slavery, and I'll, I'll use that term just for a moment, was all about an agreement. The word indenture means agreement. It was an agreement between one person and another for service. Most common was someone who had a debt to pay, could not pay it out, and had an agreement in a household to serve for a period of time without pay, room and board provided, be part of the household until that debt was paid off. So though they weren't building any equity, though they weren't being paid, it wasn't a position of hierarchy and demand where that servant, or when you read the word slave in the Old Testament, that slave was forced to do that. That person made an agreement with someone to work for pay that didn't go to them, it went somewhere else. Now, there are other ways that that uh, worked out. Oftentimes, in New Testament times, for sure, Old Testament as well, they did not have a social safety net. In Canada, if you have hard times, if you've lost your job, if something happens, there's always somewhere you can go. It may not be enough, but federal, provincial, local services, government, community agencies, and the church. The Old Testament took care of widows specifically. The New Testament early church, the first thing 
the apostles did by way of organization as they stopped helping the widows and the poor so they could preach and the term deacon was formed. And so these deacons, these people would help with the widows because they had no means of employment. So if someone has no means of employment, the lower class, what would they do? They would make an agreement with someone to serve. And if you look in the Old Testament, from our eyes today, backwards, you can be really offended. There's all sorts of stuff I don't fully understand. But in its context, in its context of history, was years, years, hundreds and thousands of years ahead of the other cultures in treatment of those deemed slaves or servants. So we look backwards and we say, I I don't get this, this doesn't make sense. In its context, in its history, the status of slaves and servants in Israel was raised. There was bad stuff that happened. We can look backwards into our own history of men and women who used the Bible to say that slavery was it's a good thing. God wants it. You will never anywhere in any of the Bible find God permitting the capture, the sale, or the trade of human life. Anywhere. It's, it, when you see something like that, you can think of Joseph, if you know the, the narrative of Joseph, sold by his brothers who were wicked. And then the Israelites were slaves under Egypt who were wicked. They were forced to stay. God had to rescue them from that. Yes, that's one term and one way to view slavery in the Old Testament. But when this author talks about servanthood and slavery, they are talking about indentured servanthood, a means by which lower class, destitute, People with no other option, by way of debt or whatever it may be, have a means to make a living. And the Old Testament sets in place boundaries for how long that can happen. Most often six years, and on the seventh year they were to be released. And the cool thing, if there's any positive light in this at all, there's specific instructions for a servant in a household. Part of the household, right? Lives with, serves is around the household and other people, if at the end of their service, they develop deep relationship with that family. They and the family, they and the household begin to love one another in a a friendship, in a familial way, how they can stay as freed or stay to continue to serve in that role as either a part of the household or any other thing. So there are instructions on how to free people, how not to oppress, how this is to be worked out as a means by which to provide for those who have nothing. So, we need to see this. And the only way I can wrap my head around this, because if you look at the 1800s, the early 1900s, in our society, especially in the States, and the slave trade, and all of those things, it's horrible, deplorable, and God does not bless it at all. Not at all. But there's one thing in our more recent history of the world that helps me think about this. And so today, this is what helped me understand. Think of Victorian-era England. If you've ever watched Downton Abbey, okay, and there's servants and maidservants in a household who have a job as the lower class, 
various roles in the household to serve with a family or a household. Everyone has a role. There is a master, not in the sense of master over a human, but that's the term that's used, master or head of the household, and a mistress. And then down the line is family and all sorts of different workers from butlers and heads of kitchen on down, just like a place of employment, because it was a place of employment. And just so you, you understand that the intent behind Victorian England servitude was to be an equality and to provide, that, that was the lower class other than the workhouses. And so it was, it was a means by which to earn a living. In 1887, a book called How to Behave was published. And it was meant for the wealthy in England to know how to behave with their servants and maidservants in their household. I'll just read you a short quote. We are all dependent in one way or another upon others. At one time we serve, at another we are served. And we are equally worthy of honor and respect in one case as in the other. The man or woman who serves us may or may not be our inferior in natural capacity, learning, manners, or wealth. Be this as it may, the relation in which we stand to him or her gives us no right beyond the exaction of the service stipulated or implied in that relation. The right to tyrannize over inferiors in social position, to unnecessarily humiliate them, or to be rude and unkind cannot exist because it would be an infringement of other rights. Servants have rights as well as those whom they serve, and the latter have duties as well as the former. We owe those who labor for us something more than their wages. Now here's where it all goes sideways. So that's saying we're all equal, we have different roles, you can't treat people poorly in your home, even if you're employing them. Wonderful. Here's where this whole illustration goes sideways. Not only is it hard for us to go, oh, these are horrible terms and we know that. What does God think of that and try and get past that? Even if we view it as a Victorian England, the psalm itself talks about us as a servant and God as the master. And if we think Victorian England equality, we are not equal with God. If we try and come at this psalm from a sense that I'm equal with God, then we miss the point altogether. So there's so many roadblocks to this simple four-verse psalm for us to understand. But God is good. Think of it as parenting, okay? Parents have power and position. They have power and position over their children. Good parents use their power and their position to raise help, encourage, develop, both through discipline and blessing, children. They use their power and position for good. Bad parents use their power and position to demean children, to treat them bad, and to abuse them. We need to be careful that we do not misunderstand someone as God in authority over us who we are to submit to but that does not equal abuse of power. You know what equals abuse of power? Abuse of power. <laughs> abuse of power, treating someone harshly and cruel and mean is abuse of power. And if we have that understanding, 
that comes into this psalm. But it's not from God. It's from the other people mistreating the psalm writer. And so rather than the psalm writer saying, God, your master, I'm your servant. Stop treating me so poorly, God, on high, distant from me. He's not looking, shaking his fist at God at the injustice of the position he's in. If you cared about me, God, you'd do something. So you must not care. It's the exact opposite. He's looking to God who's in position of power and authority to fix the mess that's here. And he's saying, I am a servant. You're the master. You have power and position. You know what's going on. Help me know what to do and get involved so it changes. Help me know what to do, how to behave, and work towards change. So this is psalm is uh, from a person looking for mercy, looking for direction, looking for deliverance, not from a God under whom he has mistreatment, but from a God who has the power to do something about it. Isn't that good to know when you think of your school and your neighborhood and your job and those people who you feel mistreated by, that God knows and we can go to him? And that's the context of this psalm. So we need to be thinking We are beneath God. He doesn't have to listen to us. God can do whatever he wants, but instead, because his nature is loving and kind and good, he doesn't treat us as we deserve. He treats us with love. And he listens. And he cares when we are mistreated. And with that context, we jump into (laughs) Psalm 123. That's probably the longest introduction I've ever given for four verses in my life. Verses one and two, so it's two parts. First part's about deliverance and, and dependence. Uh, sorry, dependence and direction. God, what do I need to do in this situation? Second part is about deliverance. So uh, Psalm 123, verse one and two. I lift my eyes to you, O God, enthroned in heaven. Sound familiar? Uh, we keep looking to the Lord our God for his mercy. Here's where you have to imply all those things. Just as servants keep their eyes on their master, as a maidservant watches her mistress for the slightest signal. And it may say slaves, I'm just choosing to use the word servants. It's just easier. It's the same thing in the context. All right? So the overall theme here, again, is this person looking to God for mercy, for a sign that God's going to give some guidance. Have you ever asked God for a sign? Most of us have. God, I'm going to need some guidance I don't know what to do. Give me a sign to help me know what to do. I remember in my young adult life, flipping coins. Maybe you didn't do that. I did that. I was like, God, there's a big decision. I don't know what to do. Uh, Help me flip. It didn't work. It's really immature. I was really spiritually immature. It's It's not a good look. It's not a good way to approach God. Guess what? He's so good, he meets us in our immaturity and all that stuff. He helps us mature. And so we've all looked to God for a sign in some way, shape, or form when we need some guidance. And the picture here is that of a calm servant or maidservant in a bustling household. Think of a banquet being served where the head of the home and the mistress, they're holding the whole thing together. They understand the whole picture. They know who's coming. They know what the meal's supposed to be like. They know what piece is going to happen when. They're looking at their guests. They're, They're leading the whole thing. 
Not because they are harsh or cruel or mean, but that's their role. They, they hold everything together. And the servant and the maidservant, whether they are standing calmly waiting for the next thing to happen or doing something, are watching the head of the home or the mistress for the slight sign of what to do next. Is it time to serve dessert? Does this guest need something? It's not the servant's role to hold the whole thing together, to know everything that's going on. They need to know what they need to do next. And each servant and maidservant have different roles. And sometimes the sign comes by a bell in old Victorian homes. Sometimes when the relationship was close between a head of the home and a mistress and the servants, maidservants, people who work in the house, it was a knowing nod, a hand gesture. Something subtle because the relationship was close. They'd been together for so many years, they, they just got it. And they worked together. That's, that's how authority works with God. He's, he's above us, but as a servant or maidservant, looks at someone they have relationship to for mercy and a sign, so too we should be looking for God. So that this idea of eyes is really important. We see this in Psalm 121. We see this here. I lift my eyes up. Think of a servant at a banquet. Maybe they've just set dinner out and they're just off to the side waiting calmly. But watching the, the maidservant or the head of the home for, for a, you know, a nod, like this person needs more drink. This. They can't do it because they have a role. God has a role over this all. He doesn't do everything for us. He asks us to do things. And so we're waiting for him. So we need to understand that we need to look to him. But what is this psalmist looking for? This, this is a little odd. It took me a bit to get what is intended. He's looking to God for mercy. What is that mercy? Now, mercy is, uh, the word mercy is used three times in this psalm. Same Hebrew word. Its meaning is different here than it is in verse 3. It's just due to context. Mercy here has to do with acting favorably towards someone. So think of it as a teacher who responds and acts in kindness favorably to a student who is responsible and well-behaved. Think of it as a boss who responds and acts favorably, acts in kindness to a great employee. Let's be honest, okay? Mistreating people is never okay. But you treat people who you're friends with or have good relationship with or who are just nice, different. I'm not talking about preferential treatment. I'm not talking about a boss going, hey, my friend's going to get this promotion. They, they don't have the skills or qualifications, but I don't like this guy, so my friends, that's not it. It's not a teacher going, I don't like this student. They talk all the time, so I'm not going to let them have an A. It's, it's not about that. In our relationships, when you get along with someone, you talk to them differently. Think about going to a grocery store, all right? So you're in the grocery store, you see someone you know. If it's someone you don't get along with, you can treat them cordially. You don't have to be mean. You shouldn't sidestep or, you know, like kick their cart over or something like that. You say things like, hey, nice to see you. Shopping today? Yes, wonderful. Hope you find all good to see you. You're not friends. You, you know, there's, it's, you just don't talk. You see someone that you get along with, you probably have a bit more conversation, don't you? We just interact with others differently according to our relationship. 
And this author is saying, God, you view all people equally because you are just and you are righteous. But may you look on me with kindness in the guidance you give. Because I'm submitting to you as a servant submits to the head of the home, may you guide me in a deeper way. I believe that this type of favor, not favoritism, not bias, not nothing untowards, just the reality of, like, we have favor towards others and others not. I think that Stephanie and, and, and I received favor when she was going through cancer treatment. What I don't mean is that God bumped her to the front of the line to the detriment of others. Or that God did things for her with the medical system and others suffered. No, what I mean is because she lived as a follower of Jesus and had a different demeanor in the people she interacted with, I noticed a difference in how doctors and nurses spoke to her on a personal level and provided care for her in a more personal way, not to the detriment of others and not bumping her up or treating her with preferential treatment. There was just a favor, and we talked about that. And I think that God does that. And so what this author is saying is, in my relationship with you, God, have mercy or have favor on me. Look upon me favorably and give me guidance in a deeper way. Not just, here's a verse, obey it, you know what I say. Right? It's the difference between a parent who says, what are you coming to me about that for? We have a rule in this household, just do it. And a parent who says, sit down and tell me about that. Let's work this out together. Let me help you figure out how to deal with the bully at school. It's a spouse who sits down and says, let me help you figure out what to do with that hard relationship at work, that person who's treating you poorly. So he's looking for favor. So when we're looking for direction in how to respond when we're frustrated to mistreatment, the posture to take is one of dependence to God and asking for his mercy in the sense we're asking him for personalized guidance. Be merciful. Because God doesn't have to, right? God's given us his word. He gives us general guidance. He gives the church. You can ask for advice. He doesn't have to. But he does. And he wants to. That's the crazy part. God wants to hear about this trouble you're in and help you know what to do. Not generally, specifically. And so the posture we take is one of dependence to receive direction. Then we have verse 3 and 4. And so now the psalmist isn't just asking, God, help me know what to do personally. He's saying, God, there's stuff I can't do. Would you deliver me? Like, could, could you just help me out? Could, could you intervene? So verse 3. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy. Like, get involved, God. View me with favor. Don't just... Don't just stay up there, me down here. We know that God's not up there and us down here, but to the Hebrew people, it was very much that way in the Old Testament. For we have had our fill of contempt. We have had more than our fill of the scoffing of the proud and contempt of the arrogant. It's looking for God to act. Like, God, you, you know what's going on here. So why aren't you doing something? Like, help me out. 
That's a great thing to ask God, and he wants us to because he's listening. The context is that this psalmist has had enough. Have you had that? Maybe at school, work, home, friend group, somewhere, someone has treated you poorly. And you've done what you can to follow the advice, you know, like if it's, you know, a bully at school and you're not, you're not going to, you know, fight with them and you're going to try and handle it maturely. But sometimes people just don't listen at work. Maybe there's someone who just keeps accusing you of things you're not doing or just tries to um, increase who they are and, and climb the ladder off of your back and keeps making up stuff about you. It happens. And you've done everything in your power to try and help it out. And you're fed up. You're like, I've had my fill. I've had more than my fill. God, I don't know what to do. I've done everything I can think of doing, and it's not getting better. Now, the context here is that this mistreatment was because this psalmist followed God. Jesus said something similar. This is an incredibly encouraging verse. And if you can't hear the sarcasm in my voice, it's there. Jesus says this, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things about you because you're my followers. Thanks, Jesus. Be happy about it. Be very glad. Why? For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Those who follow God, those who follow Jesus will be persecuted. The world is set up in such a way that God is overall but Ephesians says there's the prince of the air, another word for Satan, who's given some measure of authority in this world. And through the power of sin and his influence and the things that are just the evil that's in the world, it, it's bad. And so because this world and its prince, its ruler, even though God's overall, right? Satan's given some authority for a time. Because he's set against God, he's set against us. So it's odd for me to bring that up in a part of the psalm where like the psalmist is saying, hey, God, get involved. Because why doesn't God just get rid of Satan? Isn't he powerful enough to go, okay, sin is bad, Satan's bad, demon's bad. Let's get rid of him and make this life pretty good. The problem with that is this. Sin is an actual thing. There's something called the power of sin that came into the world at the first sin of humanity. It already existed because Satan had already sinned against God. But it came in the world, and in order for God to deal with it, he has to deal with it all. Because this thing, sin, is connected to people and things. Satan, demons, those who don't follow Jesus, all of it. And for God to deal with it, he just does it once and for all. He casts it away into a lake of fire, no longer to impact his people or his place. New heavens, new earth. That's why there is a heaven. It's not like God is put angels around the outside of heaven and keeps evil from coming in, finally, he just deals with it. He's, he's more powerful. It's nothing to him. But if he does that today, it limits the number of people who can find Jesus. So in his goodness and grace, somehow he waits. And he allows evil to reign. He allows people to have free will while still being in control. Is he sovereign? Yes. Does he give us free will? Yes. Do I know how that works? No. <laughs> but that's the reality of this life. And so Jesus said, while you're in this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have persecution. People are going to be set against you. Sometimes they won't even know why. 
It's just a part of the sinful world. People connected to sin. Some are going to do that willingly, willfully, intentionally. Some it's just going to happen. They're broken. There's a cry here for the favor of God to come out of his mercy and deal with deep, deep injustice. And we have opportunity to do that. What do you do? Okay, we'll go back to this school bully thing, this work thing, okay? What do you do when at school you can't deal with a bully on your own? Okay, you've done everything you can. You've asked friends, you've asked parents, you've done everything you possibly can. It's not stopping. What do you do at work when someone keeps lying about you, getting you in trouble, and, and it's enough? Like they're, maybe they're stealing their, your numbers, fudging theirs, whatever it is. What do you do when you tried everything in a godly manner? I'm not talking about being wicked or evil or anything like that. Like, you've honestly tried your best. What do you do? You go to the boss, you go to the teacher, you go to the principal. There are things, verse 1 and 2, that God works in us and wants to guide us to do. There's good principles for us to deal with when we're frustrated at mistreatment. But there comes a point where we are powerless to change things. And we call out to God and we ask Him in His mercy, I've had enough, I've had my fill, I don't know what to do, I've tried everything, God, and it's not working. I need you to get involved. In effect, he's saying this. God, have mercy on me and end my oppression. God, have mercy on me. Like, do something more than what you're doing. Have favor on me and end this oppression. End this. It seems from the context, that's what God wants. Now think about this psalm what it's for, right? Because we're talking about it in, in context of us and how we apply it. What's its original intent? The people of Israel are meant to sing this thing. Why? Because when they're coming away from the trouble and the mistreatment and the lives back home and going to the temple, going to Jerusalem, going to the tabernacle, to worship, focus on God for a period of time, these things are weighing heavy on their heart. And it's an encouragement for them to do the right things to say, God, continue to guide my steps. Help me know what to do and get involved. What a great song to sing. Like when you're in trouble, to have those two things running in your heart and head so that you can have dependence on God, so that your trust is in your God, so that you know your eyes are looking to God just as a servant looks to the head of the home for that sign of what to do. You're that dependent on God. And when you're at your end, you can't do anything else. You say, you do it. You get involved. I can't do that. So what's, what's the application? How should we respond to frustration in conflict? How should we respond to frustration in conflict? It's a guy by the name of Murray Bowen. And he came up with a thing called modern family systems theory. I'll tell you what that is. Family systems theory is a theory of human behavior that views the family as an emotional unit and uses systems thinking to describe the unit's complex interactions. Okay, so it's just a theory of how people interact. And as part of that theory and that system of understanding family and relational dynamics, he coined a phrase, non-anxious presence. Some of you maybe have heard that, to be a non-anxious presence. Now, as I was going through emails this past week, I just happened upon this leadership email I get weekly, and it had an article about this in regard to leadership. And I think what it says 
actually applies here. And I'm very thankful to God for providing this while I'm studying through this. So take these uh, pieces of advice, though meant for church leaders, and think about applying them to your life. So in conflict, what does a non-anxious person do? How do you have a non-anxious presence? What I mean by that is you're not like freaking out. Because we make a mess when we freak out. When we tried everything we can possibly do, and we're looking to God to act, and he's not, then we freak out. (laughs) And then we make a bigger mess. How do you be a non-anxious presence that continues to follow the guidance of God and waits for him to act? Number one, a non-anxious person can truly listen to other people, even if he or she is bearing bad news or criticism. So when you're getting in input about this situation from others, you can even receive bad news or criticism. A non-anxious person can hold his or her emotions in check, even when on the hot seat. That's a hard one. A non-anxious person seldom gets defensive, denies and deflects away from personal responsibility. A non-anxious person can acknowledge the emotions of his or her critic. A non-anxious person, this is the most important one, I think, will calmly and courageously respond instead of reacting. That's the heart of the psalm, I think. A desire to respond to God's direction instead of reacting in the frustrated emotion. I've had it up to here, God. I'm sick of it. I've had my fill. What are you going to do? Right? You've been there. I've been there. We've all been there. In fact, I think one of my biggest pastoral mistakes is when I avoid, have a tendency to avoid conflict, to try and keep peace and keep everything nice until my frustration builds, and then in a moment of weakness, I respond in emotion. Right? Some of us do that, some of us not. Maybe you're a stuffer, maybe you're a conflict avoider. It doesn't matter your personality. We all have frustrations about mistreatment, and we need to know what to do. Jesus had a non-anxious presence. Jesus did not react. Jesus responded appropriately. And each time he responded, he responded the right way at the right time. Always. And I believe it's because in his full divinity and full humanity, he relied upon the guidance of the Father and the power of the Spirit the same way we do. Though fully God and fully human. He maintained this under pressure. Uh, He didn't react ungodly like others. He didn't defend, he didn't deflect, he didn't deny, he didn't react, he didn't run ahead, he didn't make a mess of things in his frustration. He expressed emotion. Remember, he flipped over tables to protect people. He said when his disciples couldn't cast out a demon, how long do I have to stay with you people? It's not that Jesus was this nice guy all the time in the way we think of nice. He was loving, gentle, and appropriate at all times. When he expressed his emotion and when he stood silent before his accusers, no less godly or taking God's steps, whether frustrated or calm. What do we tend to do? We say we fight fire with good job, well done. Maybe you don't know that phrase. Let's try that again. We fight fire with fire, right? We all know that. So uh, I, I... 
uh, pastored with, if you know Ben Arbin, Karen Arbin, uh, Kara Arbin, shared up here a number of weeks ago um, with ShareWorld Global. And her husband, Ben, I served with his dad, Craig, at the last church I was at. We served for a number of years. It's a great relationship. And he was a volunteer fireman. And in his office, he had this glass orb held in this kind of wooden holder thing. And so I asked him about it one day. I'm like, what is that? And it's this. It was a fire grenade, okay? You can read that. Uh, A fire grenade was a very dangerous thing. It's filled with, um, let me just get the the proper uh, word here. Um, Carbon tetrachloride. It's filled with this liquid, this carbon tetrachloride. And if thrown at the base of a fire, uh, that carbon tetrachloride would evaporate in the heat and become something that would extinguish flames. Great idea. It was used all, you know, from the 1800s on. Some of the more fancy models had like this cork or stopper like that picture. You can throw that picture up again if you want. Uh, And so when the heat got bad enough at the bottom there, that would kind of melt off and the liquid could kind of spew. So it was an automatic one. So either they're throwing it or it's spewing and smashing on its own. Here's the thing. Uh, In the... In the 1950s, these things began to be outlawed uh, because though they were effective at stopping the fire, there's a couple things they did not so well. First of all, if you're running into a fire, uh, throwing glass and having broken glass everywhere is not really a good good thing. It's not very safe, is it? The other cool thing that this car, what's it called, carbon tetrachloride did at extreme temperatures in big fires, is not only would it put out the flames with the gas it would produce, it became toxic to humans. What a wonderful thing. You put out a fire, and you make people sick or they die. Great, right? What do we do when we're really frustrated? We fight fire with fire, or at best, we use a fire grenade. And we do something that gets rid of the conflict in the moment, seems to make things die down, but become toxic to the relationship and the atmosphere ongoing beyond there. Jesus had a far better way. And it's this. Depend on God's direction and his deliverance to respond to frustration like Jesus. Okay? We depend on God's direction and his deliverance to respond to frustration as Jesus did. Jesus never freaked out. He always did the right thing in the right way. We need to depend on God in the same way a servant depended on just even the simplest of signs from the head of the home or the the maidservant. Here's what to do. We can't think of that in terms of someone who's in a bad relationship with a bad boss, bad head. Think of someone who has been serving 20 years together, have a close friendship. Both have shared intimate details of their life. Just in that banquet, they hold different roles. And they're looking for the wink of the eye, the nod of the head, that mercy, that little bit of favor to know what to do a little bit better and to be able to respond and react just just so, just in such a way that everything goes well. Do you know God wants that for you? Like he wants you in these really bad situations at work or school or home or your neighborhood, wherever, for things to work out well. Do you know he wants to do that with you? And he's waiting for you to have that dependence on him, to ask 
for guidance. And when that wears out, when you are keeping in step with the Spirit, when you're doing everything you possibly can under the guidance and leading of the Spirit, and nothing seems to change, you wait for His deliverance. And you have a non-anxious presence. It's totally appropriate to say again and again, God, where are you? Why aren't you acting? That's different than, God, I hate you. <laughs> like You're not doing what I want. That's not what is being said here. It's this frustration. God, I've had enough. Have you had your fill? Are you in a situation that you just don't know what to do? So what I want to do today in closing is I want us to read this together in a moment. And we're going to read it from the message translation because it uh, it's kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit better. And I want you, especially if you think of a situation in your mind that this is applicable to, to make this your prayer. And then I'll simply close in prayer. So would you stand with me? And we're going to all read Psalm 123, 1 to 4 together. Make it your prayer. I look to you, heaven-dwelling God. Look up to you for help. Like servants alert to their master's commands, like a maiden attending her lady, we're watching and waiting, holding our breath, awaiting your word of mercy. Mercy, God, mercy. We've been kicked around long enough, kicked in the teeth by complacent rich men, kicked when we're down by arrogant brutes. And Father, I pray where that's the case for us, whether we're a kid with a bully at school, maybe in the neighborhood, maybe we're in a, a home situation or a, a friend situation where someone's taking things out on us, whether it's through their brokenness or they just don't like that we follow you. Or maybe it's at work. Somewhere, somehow, some of us here today have had our fill. We've had enough. We don't know what to do. We're at a breaking point, And if we continue to react in our emotion, we'll, we'll make a mess of things. And so, God, we ask for your guidance specifically. Lord, the verses we've read today are incredibly important, but we need that specific word from you on how to apply things. Whether it's you, you put a person in our life who can help us, a teaching, a, a book, a, another verse of Scripture, just a, a, a way or a method to respond like you did Jesus. Always doing the right thing at the right time in the right way. It may not stop what a person does, but may we be righteous and just in how we deal with others, just like you, Jesus. And Father, where we are powerless to change things, we ask for you to step in. For the kids here who are going back to school with someone they dread being with in their class. Lord, for the teachers who don't know how to deal with those students. For the managers who have a difficult employee. For the parents who are dealing with a frustrating child or spouse. Lord, for the employees who are frustrated with the boss or manager or fellow employee, for whatever situation we find ourselves in, we ask for your deliverance, for you to come and do uh, what we can't. Lord, we do ask you to work in us and through us. It's how you most often do things, and we love that about you. But there are situations we can't take and we can't control. And so I ask on behalf of us all, those watching, those here, Deliver us. Do something. And may we see that swiftly and quickly. May this song be on our hearts that may we, we may keep in step with you and trust you to do what we can't so that we respond to your spirit instead of reacting to our emotions. We ask all these things in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.